Welcome to the Gospel Matrescence Podcast. Matrescence, the physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional transformation women go through when becoming a mother. This developmental stage of life is as powerful and irreversible as adolescence, and yet few women have ever heard of it. Our communities have little to no rites of passage to celebrate or prepare for it, but here, at Gospel Matrescence, we apply a biblical worldview to the beautiful and sometimes painful metamorphosis of motherhood. Come, let's navigate motherhood together. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Gospel Matrescence Podcast. This is Andy, and I am wishing you a happy new year um, from our home here in Colorado. And we are winding down as a family from um, some very, very full and active holiday celebrations, lots of parties and dinners and out-of-town company and big New Year's parties, and here we are at the beginning of a new year, and I just um, want to send my love and greetings to all of our listeners. I'm super excited for 2024 and all that we have planned here at Gospel Matrescence. Um, We have lots of new products that are going to be launching. The website's going to be changing here in the next few weeks. And then one of the culminations of this year is going to be our first annual Gospel Matrescence Retreat, which is happening in December here in uh, the Denver area at a really sweet little um, cabin in the woods, a big cabin. It's um, the Inn Hideaway. And so just making plans for that. So please check out gospelmatrescence.com and click on um, the retreat or the events and you can read about what's going on. A little bit more about that at the end of this episode. But today I uh, have some thoughts that have been swirling around in my head that I would love to share with you to just wrestle with um, on your own. You know, if you've listened to many of the podcasts, you've heard of this term, Um, a non-anxious presence or becoming a non-anxious mother. Uh, And what would our homes be like? What would our families be like? What would our marriages be like if we were able to show up as a non-anxious presence uh, in what is often a highly anxious environment with children that are growing, with teenagers that are wrestling with their identity, with struggles with um, extended family, that what would that be like? And so in um, my reading, I'm an avid reader and I love to study and research motherhood. I'm actually working on a PhD in Christian counseling with an emphasis on motherhood. And um, I came across a British pediatrician and psychoanalyst by the name of Donald Winnicott. Um, and in, he lived in the middle of the last century and he spent, you know, decades observing babies and children and their mothers being a pediatrician, but then ultimately transitioning and doing work more in the area of counseling and psychiatry and, um, Towards the end of his career, he coined a phrase that I read an article on, and it just was fascinating to me. And this phrase was, the good enough mother. So um, what he meant by that, I thought, huh, what does he mean, the good enough mother? You know, for, for lots of us, we do not strive to be a good enough mother, to be a mediocre mother. We strive to be an excellent mother. We strive, perhaps, 
our expectation is to be a perfect mother, whether we voice that or not. The truth is deep down, each of us deeply desires to be an excellent mother, to be a perfect mother. But he actually said that it is a gift to be a mediocre mother or what he referred to as the good enough mother. And he saw the mothers that were striving towards perfection and excellence and that in doing that, they were actually increasing the anxiety of their home and bringing harm to their children. So let me read you. uh, um, This is just a summary of some of his teaching out of an article that explained some of his thoughts. So here's what it says. He came to realize that babies and children actually benefit when their mothers fail them in manageable ways. The process of becoming a good enough mother to our children happens over time. When babies are infants, we try to be available constantly and respond to them immediately. As soon as they cry, we feed them, we snuggle them, we change them. We do whatever it takes to make them feel better. And this is very important in the first year because it teaches children that they are safe and they will be cared for. But the thing is, we cannot sustain this level of attentiveness to children forever, nor should we. That is precisely Wilcott's point. He believed that the way to be a good mother is to be a good enough mother. Children need their mother to fail them in tolerable ways on a regular basis so that they can learn to live in an imperfect world. Every time we don't hear them calling us right away, every time we don't give them our undivided attention, every time we feed them a dinner that they don't really want to eat, every time we make them share when they don't want to, we are preparing them to function in a society that will frustrate and disappoint them on a regular basis. Children need to learn in small ways every day that the world doesn't revolve around them, that their every request cannot be honored, and that their behavior has an impact on other people. They need to learn through experience that life can be hard and that they will feel let down and disappointed and not get their way. But despite all of that, they will still be okay. If our children have these experiences and if their every need is not met every time, or if their every need is met every time, they will have no ability to manage the challenges that will inevitably arise later in life. They won't learn that it's okay to feel bored or annoyed or sad or disappointed. They won't learn time and time again that life can be painful and disappointing, but they can get through it. So as I read this article, and I will post this article in the show notes if you want to read more, um, it just really stirred something in me of this idea of um, what happens when we show up as mothers with a fear that we don't want to disappoint our children, that we want to meet their every need. And how is it that we go from that first year, which it's so important to develop a bond and to develop attachment, that that child realizes that when I cry, people respond, I'm seen, my needs are met. Those things are so vital to functioning and brain development and secure attachments in the first year. But one of his arguments is that when mothers continue in that type of mothering after the first year, 
that's when we begin to see a breakdown in the child's ability to um, develop properly. And so he, you know, reading some of his work, he, he talked about how infants begin life with an illusion of omnipotence, that they are omnipotent, that though they are so small, they can be the, the biggest factor in a room if they just use their voice and cry. And this is actually really important for the development that they, they realize that they experience that in the first year. He explained that a mother's ability to meet all their needs needs to begin to decline over time. And it's very necessary for the mother's mental health and the baby's welfare, that that um, stepping in and meeting every need begins to decline. That when a mother fails to meet the demands, um, it causes this illusion of omnipotence, he called it, to begin to crumble. And the child begins to learn that his power is actually limited and that it's okay to have limited power. Um, the child learns that there's a limit to their own authority and they begin to adapt to the world around them. Um, he goes on to explain that by not meeting every need and demand, a child learns to become autonomous, a healthy self, um, and that this creates at first an anxiety and an insecurity in the child. But he explains that it's much more important for the mom to concentrate on how to respond to the child's anxiety than to seek to eliminate it. That a mom's job is to help that child learn to manage their own anxiety and how to endure anxiety rather than having an external force, mom, enter in and eliminate the anxiety. And he talks about two forms of anxiety that children experience, a primary anxiety and a secondary anxiety. The primary anxiety is the anxiety that is necessary for growth. When you um, are sick and you're exhausted and it creates a sense of anxiety because your body doesn't feel right, that is necessary for a child's growth or when they have to eat a food that they don't like or when they have to share a toy that they don't want to share. Um, but a second anxiety, secondary anxiety he talks about is a transferred anxiety. It's what he refers to empathetic leakage. When a parent observes their child going through an anxiety and the parent adds more anxiety because they're trying to fix the primary anxiety. And maybe let me give an example of um, a friendship that your child is involved in where there's a sense of anxiety because the friend maybe didn't get, your child didn't get invited to a party. And that arises anxiety or they got left out in a situation. That primary anxiety stems from the actual event that happened. But when a mother's empathetic leakage steps in to try to solve the problem for the child, I mean, the most extreme version would be to call the family and say, you need to invite my child to the party. I don't know many moms that would do that. But there's a degree of ways that we step in to maybe commiserate with the child or enter into the drama triangle or, you know, over um, empathize with indulgent emotions that they're experiencing, that child no longer only has to deal with primary anxiety. Now they have to deal with the secondary anxiety that's transferred from their mother or their caregiver. And um, so these ideas is why um, this doctor and psychiatrist, um, Donald Winnicott, coined that term, the, the gift of the good enough mother. As the mother steps back and as she begins to um, 
purposefully not meet every need, to purposely allow a challenging situation to remain, to serve the food for dinner that the child doesn't like, to enforce a consequence that the family has agreed upon, to see that child be uncomfortable in the car seat in a long road trip. You know, the mother... um realizes and has a sense of peace and calm that it's okay that I am not solving this problem for my child. And he explains that this is vital for the mental health of the mother, that she accepts this role that she is a quote unquote good enough mother. She's not a perfect mother. She's not a mother that meets every need. She is a good enough mother that creates an environment where that child can begin to practice some of their grit and their resilient skills and begin to experience anxiety in small amounts that are manageable so that when they get out to the real world, um, they have experience with this and they don't expect those around them to solve their problems. And so I was meditating and wrestling with this, just kind of evaluating myself, like, hmm, am I comfortable with that as a mom? And if I was comfortable with that as a mom, it would reduce my own personal anxiety. Well, in the midst of wrestling with this, I had a friend who sent me a Jordan Peterson podcast. It's episode 403, if you're curious. Um, and it's a two-hour podcast. I usually don't listen to it very much because I think two hours is such a long podcast. That's why I try to keep mine short in the 15 to 20 minute um, region. But if you're curious, you could go to about minute 30 to 35. Um, Jordan Peterson is interviewing a university professor and they're discussing child development and um, what they talk, what they explain is the, the kind of the curse of an overindulgent mother in our day and age. Mothers who, um, really have a hard time because they dote too much on the children. And um, the child then struggles to um, regulate and to self-regulate because they've had this um, doting mother, this overindulgent or um, mother that's stepping in too much. And it was very interesting. One of the things they brought up is that we've never had this problem in history before because something um, has greatly changed in our society with the change in the age that mothers got married, you know, early on in for millennia, women got married between 15 and 20 years old, maybe you know, the lower 20s, but now the average age is, what, 27 to 30 years old. Um, we also had much larger families, so women had more babies with, you know, without the modern advent of birth control, um, and they um, had many more responsibilities in managing a home, hauling water, or doing laundry by hand, or things like that, and so mothers of the past we're not capable of overindulging the way that mothers today are because in Jordan Peterson, you know, he said the proper response of a mother to the distress of a child under nine to 12 months is to seek to meet every need immediately. That's the proper response, he says. But once they become independent in terms of crawling or walking, the mother must make a transition. And this is echoed in the work of, um, the Donald Winnicott, when he says the same thing is under a year old, that mother needs to be stepping in. But once that baby's nine to 12 months old, it's time for the mother to begin to turn and allow some of the distress to go unanswered so that child can begin to build up that resilience. Um, and yet in this interview with Jordan Peterson, they were explaining how um, historically mothers 
generally were pregnant with their next baby by then. <laughs> you know, that the child got displaced because of birth ratios and what's considered like weaning conflict in the life of a baby. They need to be weaned because mama is pregnant with the next baby. But today with the, you know, families that choose to have way less children, they choose to space their children three to five years apart, that that baby... um unfortunately maintains that illusion of omnipotence much longer because they are the baby of the family for three, four, five, six years. Sometimes they're always the baby of the family and they don't get that healthy um, developmental bump to experience that weaning conflict that um, causes that child to have to grow. That um, they, talk, they talk about it that it's an overinvestment burden, that this child has been overinvested. And so because somebody else has been easing their distress too long, their muscles to develop, you know, to respond to distress begin to atrophy. And he asked this question, um, mothers often begin or be, believe that their love can eradicate emotional distress. So as a mother, do you believe that your love and your attention can eradicate emotional distress in your child? And sometimes it's our love, but sometimes it's just put the iPad in front of their face again, <laughs> because we've got a 18 month old or a three and a half year old that's having a temper tantrum. And we would, we as mamas just want to solve it. We want to eradicate that emotional stress, whether it's giving them the food they baked for, giving them the iPad, letting them play video games longer. But he charges mothers to allow children to experience emotional distress so that in the long term, the short term is painful, but the long term knowing that I am helping you build something big and important in you because you're developing a tolerance to emotional distress and that this can be very hard for moms to do, especially when we want to be the perfect mother and when we do equate eradicating emotional distress with love and attention. Um, so I leave you with these thoughts today to just wrestle with this and I encourage you to take this to the Lord. What kind of mother are you? What um, what do you do with your children's emotional distress? Are you a mom that tends to attempt to eliminate your child's anxiety versus um, help them and concentrate on how they can respond to their own emotional anxiety? And this is a, a huge part of us becoming a non-anxious presence is allowing our children <clears throat> to wrestle with their own emotional stress and anxiety and to walk along them with it in an emotionally connected manner, but not attempting to eliminate it, not seeking to eliminate that anxiety and the distress, but seeking to empower them to confront it and build up those muscles so that when they enter the world, they don't have a distorted um, sense of their own omnipotence so that they don't project those expectations that my mother solved my emotional distress and now I expect my girlfriend to solve my emotional distress or my boss or my best friend, that this is a gift that we're giving to our children. But of course, first it requires that we learn how to process our own emotional distress and how to deal with our own anxieties. So my hope is that this is just one more little step at getting us closer to being a non-anxious presence, to accept the gift of being a good enough mother, um, and to recognize that um, overindulgence and overfunctioning can really hinder the emotional development of our children as they face trials and um, can hinder them from developing that grit and that resilience. So today, 
What are the things you expect your children to experience anxiety over? What are the things that might cause them emotional distress? You may have a two-year-old that's learning to sit at the dinner table with the family and only ever wants to eat peanut butter and jelly and chicken nuggets, and you know that they need more than that in their life. So allowing them to experience the emotional distress of not getting the food that they want. You may have a a five- or seven-year-old that's really wrestling with conflict with a sibling, and they're experiencing lots of emotional distress, and you've laid out some consequences to certain behavior, and yet it's very hard for you to fulfill those consequences consistently. Um, That may be the area you have to apply this to. You may have a teenager that's wrestling with friendships and learning the social order and experiencing conflict or clickiness and they tend to feel left out and you're tempted to step into that drama triangle and rescue. Um, but instead, I, I encourage you to take this to the Lord and ask God, what does it look like for me to coach my child towards resiliency rather than step in to eliminate the problem in their life? And what does it look like for you as a mama to manage your own emotional distress so that you can be a healthy coach so that you can give your children the gift of being the good enough mother. Um, so that's all I have for today, but I do want to just remind you again to consider um, a couple different things. The Gospel Matrescence Retreat that's going to be happening in December. It's going to be a two-night retreat full of lots of um, connection, work breakout workshops, discussions with other moms, um, worship times, excellent food. So check that out on the website. And then again, consider one of our coaching programs that we have in-person Person coaching programs. I have one starting up here in Denver in late um, January, mid to late January. We have a level one and a level two. We've already run one group. You have to um, do them in order. So the level one coaching group is a six-week group. Level two is eight. Level three is 10 weeks. And you may be wondering, well, I don't live in Denver and it's not possible for me to do that. Well, in the next few weeks, we should have available our online coaching program, which is not meant for you to do at your home by yourself. It's meant for you to grab two, three, four, five other women and for you to form your own Gospel Matrescence coaching group and to work through the coaching workbook together. So keep an eye out on the website for that because that will be available soon. So God bless you and I hope your 2024 is getting off to a great start. Bye-bye.